Hey there, listeners. This is Jasmine Aguilera, head of audio at the LA Times. Thank you so much for following and listening to LA Times podcasts, like Asian Enough. You'll still be able to find Asian Enough on your favorite podcast platforms, but starting April 11th, you're going to see a new show popping up in your feed. It's called Foretold. Foretold follows the story of Paulina Stevens, a Romani woman who was raised with the assumption that she would leave school, marry young, and become a fortune teller. Her fate seemed pretty certain until she decided to leave it all behind. With Paulina's story as a starting point, Foretold will take you past the neon psychic signs and trendy tarot cards to unravel myths and stereotypes that have followed the Romani people for centuries. If you follow Asian enough, you already follow Foretold. Be among the first to hear episode one on April 11th and keep following for new episodes every Tuesday. Can a fortune teller change your fate? Find out on Foretold, a new podcast from the LA Times. From the Los Angeles Times, welcome to the first episode of season two of Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one guest about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. Or in today's episode, being Asian Canadian, or perhaps Asian Canadian American. You'll find out. I'm one of your hosts, Jen Yamato. I cover entertainment for The Times. And I'm Tracy Brown. I'm also an entertainment reporter here, and I'm joining Jen to host Asian Enough this week, and I'm a little bit nervous and a lot of bit excited to be here. I'm so excited you're here. But first, I have to say, especially after the challenging year that we've all had and the harrowing times that our community is still facing now, Thank you so much to everyone who tuned in for our first season. And thank you to the great guests who came on and shared their stories because you all made this second season possible. Yes, thank you all very much. Um, I'm very grateful that I have now have a chance to jump from being a fan to one of the hosts this time around. And I'm so excited to have you and more of our LA Times colleagues joining and hosting this season. But before we get started, I have to say, Tracy, you came prepared today wearing the perfect shirt. Thanks. Uh, for those of you listening and cannot see, I'm wearing a shirt that says, it's an honor just to be Asian, which today's guest Sandra Oh said to the world when she was nominated for an Emmy for Killing Eve, the BBC America series. We talk about that moment and about Grey's Anatomy, of course, in which she played the legendary Dr. Christina Yang, and also why amid the ongoing wave of anti-Asian racism, she decided to pick up a bullhorn and speak out. Let's shout together. Let's be together. Let's raise our voices together, which is actually really not so much in our culture. But honestly, body, physical wise, to be able to raise your voice and say something is physicalizing the first act of what it is to declare your your space and your personhood in a crowd of people. Our conversation with Sandra Oh coming up after the break. Welcome back to Asian Enough. Here's our conversation with Sandra Oh. Sandra, thank you so much for joining us today. It's so good to have you. Oh, Jen, Tracy, it's a pleasure to be here. It goes without saying that I am usually the cheesiest one on this podcast, so I had to start this off by saying to one and all, welcome to Asian Enough, the it's an honor just to be Asian edition. 
<laughs> Trace is wearing the the t-shirt, and I just I could I could tell from the font at the just the the top the bottom of the screen. I'm like, I know what t-shirt you're wearing. Yes. How could I not wear this shirt on a day that I get to talk to you? It's an honor just to be Asian and talking to you. <laughs> Let's say thank you to Jeff Yang for picking that up and making that into a t-shirt. That's right. What's it like to see, like, your quote, it's an honor just to be Asian? And it's credited to Sandra It shouldn't oh. be credited. Uh, it's two wonderful writers. Uh, I don't know if they, w- they were at that time on Saturday Night Live. I think it was Fran Gillespie and Sudi Green. Yes. And I've been trying to kind of, like, give them credit for writing that line. But I'm happy because I understand what that line is and what it means. And it pleases me greatly that it's become... A T-shirt. You know, I remember someone, my friend in Canada, she sent me a picture because her, her boys are really into basketball. And it was Jeremy Lin who had that, who was walking out with the T-shirt. And I'm like, oh, something is happening with this T-shirt. And I think it's just an, a really nice, very shorthand uh, identifier of a moment where we could just step into the forefront to uh, claim pride for a second. You know, and so I'm really, really happy when I see anyone wearing that T-shirt. Oh, this quote came about only a few years ago, but it it really, I feel like I've been seeing it more and more in the last year even. People really taking pride in in declaring this this sentiment, which I'm sure you, you could have never predicted that saying such a thing on television would turn into a moment like this. But, you know, we've all gone through a lot in the last year. Yes. It'll be a big couple years for for the entire world and for our community in the past, you know, six months, in the past year, it's been a great awakening. And I really feel and hope a coming together. For me, I, I would really like to know, like, how how has this last year changed what's on your mind and what what you think about and what you choose to put your energy into? This past year, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm wondering how it is for you. I've just been thinking so many, the dismantling of, of systems you know, every single system that we participate. Uh, but let's keep it in, you know, this this space of, let's say, this podcast of being Asian enough. I'm constantly trying to dismantle that of what it is to be Asian enough, right? So I think that I've just gone deeper in the exploration of how, uh, let me see, the. can I see the water that I'm swimming in? You know, can I awake to, the, the the thoughts and the influences and the belief systems that I've been swimming in for the for my entire life. And I've spent a lot of time thinking and being in that space. You know, I, again, I, I, I will say I do this in my work all the time. I'm constantly trying to dismantle things, not only for myself, but for us. You know what I mean? Um, but it's just gotten deeper and, and deeper. You know, I, I, I like speaking about it in terms of my work. I recently finished two projects. Uh, one is a film. It's like a, a psychological horror called Umma, written and directed by Iris Shim. And we did that during COVID in, in October, November. And I just finished a, a half hour show for um, Netflix called The Chair uh, by Amanda Peet. And those two pieces, I feel, are working at dismantling certain belief systems that I feel like I know I have been trapped in. And I feel like we're all trapped in. And, and one is the deep, deep place of what mother is. You know, we don't necessarily have to get into that. Uh, but let's say the chair, it's really about our position, let's say, in society, what it is to be working in 
an education system. And the chair is basically set in a, in a university, uh, an English department. And I play the chair uh, of what it is to be a woman, an Asian woman heading that department. So zeroing in, let's say, of the particular lens of racism and violence against Asian Americans, the way that I really try and work to address that is profoundly through my work. You know what I mean? So the deeper that I can go to unlock certain things within ourselves, myself, in our community, and then to show myself or our community in places of normalization and also places where where the characters are full flush characters, that's how in my job, which is to come into culture, come into storytelling, come into view, that's where I uh, aim my my work. I do want to hear about Uma. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, it's, it's, still, it's still in its process, and I, I actually don't know where we are <laughs> in it, but yeah. that is basically, you know, classic. Uh, you know, I live on a farm with my, my 17-year-old daughter, and, you know, my mother's ashes come from Korea and then haunt us. Love it. Yes. It's, I feel it. I yeah, feel it in my great. bones. It's Already. great. It's great. But, you know, also, I, I will say during this time in the past year or two, which is only the first, really, I feel like I felt a change in, let's say, in the industry. I have been excited, very excited that the people who are working with are young Asian women who are directing their own writing. I mean, that's been that's been great working with Iris. I'm also working with Domi Shi at Pixar. Um, she's she directed Bao. Uh, the short yes. film. Yeah. And so working with her and working with writers, Asian American, mostly almost all Asian American female writers, you know what I mean? So, uh, that's been very, very exciting because I have felt like, Oh, there is a shift happening because all these young women are now actually helming their own projects. Well, this is also not something new for you. You've worked with Mina Shum, the filmmaker, several times. So I wonder, like, were you looking to work with? Asian female creators, even at the start of your career too, and now you're just seeing more of those opportunities to take? Correct. I don't think that I ever, I just wanted to work. When we're talking about the beginning of my career, as mm-hmm. every actress, everyone does, you just want to work. You want to work on, you want to work on the best projects possible. I will say for my career, the majority of people that I've worked with have been women and have been people of color because that's who's hired me. Do you know what I mean? So... Mm-hmm. It's nice to have it continuing on. And I will say, yes, I've had a early relationships with two key people, Mina Shum and also playwright Diana Sun. And I've done almost all their work, you know, for the past 20 years, for the past 20 years. And so what's really, really great now is that I am meeting new people, young women, young people who are now having the chance to be able to put their work up and work out and and have reached out to me. But it's been a, a long time until I feel like I've really felt that change, and that's really only in the past couple of years. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that you just touched on, talking about what you're focused on right now, even the idea of dismantling systems in your work that I feel like we're going to want to expand on in this conversation. But one thing I wanted to bring up, because it happened recently, was in March, while you were working on one of these projects, the chair in Pittsburgh, 
you made this surprise appearance at a Stop Asian Hate rally. And that moment went viral. It felt so spontaneous. It felt like... It was so spontaneous. It was so spontaneous. It was totally spontaneous. But you know, it's it's these things that go viral. They're real. You can't predict them. The only thing that I can, it, it's just it, it's from the heart. You know, yes, I was working on the chair. Atlanta happened. It was within yeah. that week, and so it was the Saturday. At, uh, so I had the day off, and I was just like, there has got to be a rally. I need to be with people. Mm. And so I was just searching, honestly, online in, in Pittsburgh. And then I got in touch with the Asian crew members. And then I was like, why am I just reaching out to my Asian crew members? You know what I mean? Like, so I actually put out an email to the entire crew and cast. It's like, only if you want to join. And so many of the crew did. It was great. And our fellow Asian crew members really, really felt supported by our crew. It was really great. And so we all headed down to this area in Pittsburgh, and it was a, a nice small rally, and 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 then I I just felt so moved to speak. Can everyone hear me? Yeah. Hi, my name is Sandra O. Oh. Pittsburgh, I am so happy and proud to be here with you, and thank you, Jake, and all the organizers for organizing this, just to give us an opportunity to be together and to stand together to feel each other. For many of us in our community, this is the first time we are even able to voice our, our fear and our anger. And I really am so grateful for everyone willing to willing to listen. I'm gonna be very, very brief on one thing that I know many of us in our community are very scared. And I understand that. And one way to kind of go through and get through our fear is to reach out to our communities. Reach out, everyone here, I will, I will offer, I will challenge everyone here, if you see something, will you help me? Yeah. If you see one of our sisters and brothers in need, will you help us? Yeah. And so we must understand, as Asian Americans, we just need to reach out our hand to our sisters and brothers and say, help me, and I'm here. And just for one thing, I am proud to be Asian! I felt so moved to speak and to speak about mostly the pride, mostly honestly, that T-shirt. It's just to remember that even through the fear, even through the fear, we belong, you know, and I just wanted to uh, voice that for a moment. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that it resonated with people. It was so powerful to see. I remember I was I was very online that day, you know, like a lot of people and in some ways searching, you know. Searching for something, searching for the words that I couldn't find in myself even. And you led the the crowd in a chant. And so there's something really powerful about not just you speaking to people, but urging them to speak themselves. You know, there's something very powerful in saying, I am proud to be Asian. I belong here. Say it with me. You know? Yeah, I, I think that's also something that we do need. It's not, the thing is, it's like, everyone is not the same. We have certain things in, in Asian culture, in Eastern cultures that are kind of similar. And those also should be honored. There's real benefit to being thoughtful, to being discerning, to being respectful. You know, those are the things that I want to, to honor. 
alongside of let's practice something that maybe is not necessarily deeply in our bones, like let's shout together, let's be together, let's raise our voices together, which is actually really not so much in our culture. You know what I mean? But but honestly, body, physical-wise, to be able to raise your voice and say something is is physicalizing the first act of, of, of what it is to declare your your space and your personhood in a crowd of people. And then it was really to say, there's like, you know, a couple hundred people here. Could you turn to someone and 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 ask them for help or whatever? Just just try it. It was just really just to kind of claim our our space. Yeah, the words "I am proud to be Asian" were so powerful for me because growing up, it took me a while to to get to that place, and I'm I'm fine and I'm very much proud to be Asian. But um, I think vocalizing that is something that I still I don't want to say struggle with, but it's it's. It's a balance. Like, I, it, I never felt like I needed to say it as much. But just to go back for a second, you grew up in a small town in Canada. Your parents were immigrants from Korea. How did you form your identity there growing up as a kid? You know, honestly, I'm still unraveling that. I'm still deeply, deeply unraveling that and trying to unravel that through my work. You know, I had a very, very typical immigrant experience. I'll say a typical Korean-American Korean-Canadian experience where my parents came on the wave of the 60s and went into the professional class. You know, late 70s and 80s, the kind of merchant class where all the shops and the dry cleaning stores, all that kind of opened up, right? I grew up in a small town in Canada. All my friends were white, went to a Korean church. (laughs) You know what I mean? Church, church, church. Uh, and then I went to uh, the National Theater School. Again, mostly all white. I didn't really have an experience of meeting fellow Asian artists, actors, or writers, or musicians until I left. Until I left school. Until honestly, I was in my uh, early twenties. I moved to Toronto. And uh, do you know Jean Yoon? Have you ever seen the show? Um, Kim's Convenience. Okay. Of course. Yeah, right? So Jean plays the mom. I also know Paul. Oh, Paul, Sun Hyung Lee. Um, he plays the dad in Kim's Convenience. They are probably some of the first people I met when I went to Toronto. And it was just like, I remember I remember this so well. Jean did this amazing piece about Yoko Ono. And that was the first time I started rethinking my thoughts about Yoko Ono. Mm-hmm. Was when Jean started, she did this project called the Yoko Ono Project. And it really affected me deeply. And that, even that, I started, started the beginning of dismantling what my belief system was about Yoko Ono. Which was? Which was probably not when you were growing up, but when I was growing up, you'd be thrown just for random, like, you know, yeehaws, driving from the outside of a, a car window, you know what I mean? Would be throwing this name out. And when I was young, I did not know exactly who she was, what it was, but I knew it was bad. I knew it was a bad thing. I knew it was whoever this person was. And then when you then start knowing about the Beatles, so much of the literature, so much of the belief of, of the history of, of the Beatles were about vilifying Yoko Ono instead of, <laughs> instead of saying that she was the guide to, to help him find his 
next step of artistry. I mean, she's the artist. He was following her. You know what I mean? So, so only when I started understanding her as an individual artist did I start going, wait, that's not right. Why do I have a problem with her? Most I had a problem with her, not, not her, obviously, being called her because it was a negative racist epithet. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I didn't want, want to be identified. My God. So I would say the full circle of it was, so in 19, I was going to go host uh, Saturday Night Live. And I met Yoko Ono in an airport. I'm not joking. I'm not joking. I was sweating. I, and I cried after. So I was just sweating. And then also I was able to go up to her and just give her my thanks. I mean, I got to tell you, I was bowing like crazy. And <laughs> But I also asked her, I would love to do a photograph of your famous photograph. There's a very famous photograph of Yoko and just kind of her hair cascading. And then she said, no problem. And then I was able to do that for Saturday Night Live to actually kind of inhabit her. I felt so uh, gratified by that because like, I want to be Yoko. I want to, I want to celebrate and, and be so proud of like my inner Yoko. Yeah. Did you tell her? I told the her that. Story? I, I, I just, I, I, just her? I mean, I told her like, I want to take this photograph. Is it okay if I do this and, mm-hmm. and I can, you know, be in the, the, your famous photograph? And she said it was fine. I'm, you know, she's a busy lady. I don't know whether. I don't know whether anything <laughs> ever got to her at all. Now, I'm I'm very curious to know this, actually, from your experience growing up. And this is entirely to do with the fact that we actually have not had yet guests on our show who grew up outside of America. And I would love to know if you have a perspective on the Asian Canadian experience as being similar or distinct from you know, an Asian American experience? That's a really good question. I'll start by our population. You know, the entire population of Canada can fit into California, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. And the entire ethos of what it is to be Canadian is different than what it is to be American. American is a melting pot. Canadian is a mosaic. So that really does formulate a lot of your thinking. So let's say you're talking about downtown Toronto, you know, which I think has like the highest percentage of different ethnicities per, I don't know, square footage or whatever. There are so many different, like you ride, uh, you know, I would ride this, I don't even know if it's around. I would ride the Spadina bus, which was basically went through Chinatown. uh, And you would just hear so many different, languages, you'd see so many different colors, you have a lot of universities right in the center of of Toronto. Um, And so what happens in that is that you have so many different groups of people, but the population is small. So everyone still identifies as Canadian, and there seems to be a place for everyone. I'm not saying that racism doesn't exist, because it totally does. But there is and I can just say in the, maybe in the bigger cities, there is more of an acceptance of different ethnicities, different languages. And I don't know whether the acceptance is because the population is small. Do you know what I mean? So suddenly it's, you're not rivaling, you know, the white population because Canada is still fairly white. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I don't know what the percentages is. I mean, you know. 
So there's that. I feel like the acceptance of just different and or and also the pride, Canadians' pride of of having different ethnicities is is different. I don't really necessarily feel that here. But as an Asian American experience, it's it's hard because you know when I uh, left theater school and went to Toronto, uh, that was in the '90s, and there was a very small population of us. Who I'd say a lot of them, you say like me and Gene and Paul, which by the way, hashtag save Kim's convenience, right? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, I heard that, right? Yeah, let's put it out there. Yeah, woohoo! So, 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 but then there's this. What I felt always kind of jealous of, of uh, Asian Americans, that there were enough people to really form a community. You know what I mean? Like in Canada, from my experience, I was kind of like the only person, the only person of color, the only Asian person. And then if in the Asian-nesses, <laughs> like the only Korean one, right? And I also, I will say, I grew up in a fairly small town, right beside Ottawa, but it's a fairly small town. So like coming into Toronto, there was at least a, a larger community. But then, you know, going to like, you know, I had my cousins in like New York or then people in LA or I, I met the first time I went to the Asian American Film Festival in, 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 in San Francisco. It blew my mind. <laughs> it blew my mind. And that was for me was so exciting that I felt just in the numbers. Do you know what I mean? There was just so much more. So then I felt like I got a much more diverse experience of different Asian Americans. You know, a lot of the kids that I grew up with were very much like me. You know, grew up in a certain type of household where, you know, a certain type of education and all good. But then when I came to the States and then met... um I remember particularly musicians. I'm trying to remember the name of the band. They were from Chicago and they ran a film festival there. And I was just like, oh my God, cool Korean musician dudes. And I, it, it blew my mind. It like blew my mind. Again, I am from a different generation. So, uh, then, then you too. But it was very, very exciting. It was very, very exciting that there was just the numbers were higher. Yeah. As you just mentioned, you know, coming from a different generation, growing up in a small town, with, with your background, like, how did you tell your parents you wanted to be an actor? Well, I think that they knew from the very beginning that it was probably going to happen. Because example, like, it's like, if you make it to grade five piano, then you can keep dancing. That was a trade-off. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because it's like, I didn't want to play piano. I wanted to dance, but you know what I mean? So the whole performance aspect of it was there from the very beginning. And they witnessed it. So I would say during my high school period coming into then you have to make the decision for university. That's when it really, you know, shit hit the fan where it's like you just have to say, I'm not going to go to university. I want to go to theater school. This is what I want to do. Like many um, East Asian child of immigrants, you know, uh, my whole family is very educated. I would, I, I'm not, I'm the only one, I'm the only one. I've got a degree from the National Theater School. That's, that's my degree. And your parents were totally cool with it, right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they were so cool with it. They were really, really cool with me not, you know, taking that scholarship from, you know, Carleton University. Um, no, it, it was really, it was really, very difficult, but it's in the way that I am exceptionally grateful for. It was a very classic thing of like, when you're starting to separate from your 
parents at that correct age, or at least at the age that I was, which was my late teens, that's the right time to do it. That is the right time to try and find your voice and to try and um, surpass whatever and break away from whatever the ties uh, that you have with your with your parents. And this is nothing new to probably you two, but I don't know about the rest of the, your audience. It's a very complicated, as it always is, familial relationship that we have within our community. The responsibility, the burden, and the lack of openness is is very present in in our in our community. I just had um, a very 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 strong desire and calling and ambition, and I will say. I have a really fairly good relationship with my my family and my parents. And I think I was able ultimately to do that because I really did know that my parents love me. Yeah. On that note, I feel like now's the time to tell you that I was at the Golden Globes the night that you won. Oh my God! And I was in the crowd covering for the LA Times and I looked as soon as you went I looked at your parents and they were so happy and uh later on I went up to them and I asked them how they felt and they told me that they were so proud of you and I knew that even just putting those words in print would be deeply meaningful to all the Asian kids out there who need to hear that from their parents Mm -hmm. I think it's very obvious from the the mere fact that you mention your parents a lot and and you took them with you to these big nights in your in your life and your career that you are close and it's been really nice to see yeah you know I, I I I've done it just because I've wanted to and then I've been happy that I think that it can take on another meaning you, you know for those of us who have not been able to have that relationship with our parents or share things or have them kind of understand or have them have pride in the decisions that we've that we've made not that they're conscious about this at all it's like it's really great that my parents have been a stand in in some ways i mean hilarious <laughs> i mean like did my mom crack a smile did she did she really <laughs> i'm pretty sure i saw them raise a toast but i'm not sure there was champagne in their glass sure not <laughs> Sure not. Yeah. It's funny though, we talk like a lot of Asian American kids, you know, like or grown kids, as I still consider myself always, have that kind of relationship with their parents. But my parents were in internment camps as babies, Japanese Americans. So they grew up as children in the fifties and sixties with their parents wanting them to go live your life, you know, do what you want. And so they passed that on to to me which I really appreciate, especially in hindsight, uh, and especially the more that I hear other Asian American kids' stories of the opposite. But there's something that you said that is still common to my experience, which is a lack of openness. There was a real lack of, of processing a lot of things. And that's one thing that I really wish had happened more, and I, I try to think about more and presently you know, integrate into my life as an adult and try to have those conversations now. Well, this is clearly what this podcast is. You know what I mean? I, I Processing for ourselves and, mm-hmm. and through that process, hopefully for, for others, for sure. It's very interesting what you're saying, Jen, is because it's like that's a generational thing of mm-hmm. how long you've been here. 
what your mm-hmm. experience is, and then what the next, because I am a child of immigrants. So I, I'm sure, I hope the sociologists studying this stuff of like what happens with this generation. Because I will say the people from my generation don't have language, don't have, mm. at least, you know, the Koreans that I know don't have the language. But my friends who are, let's say, in their 30s, and most who grew up in bigger cities like LA mm-hmm. or New York, Chicago, mm-hmm. have the language. Mm-hmm. And that's a big difference. So I was like, why is that? And I, you know, I'm sure it makes sense. It's like the very first child of immigrants, you want your, that's the first largest rejection. And then maybe the next generation can have it be also a point of pride. That's really interesting to me because I'm also, I'm, I'm like half Nisei. My mom is an immigrant from Japan and I was taught how to speak Japanese first, regardless of the fact that my father is an English speaking American, because for her, it was very important that I retain the language because she knew as someone who came to America in her late 20s, like, what if I forget English? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I appreciate that your mom like had the forethought for you, Tracy. You know, yeah, that's I think I find that a very interesting s- subject. Like, it, like if you grew up in a larger city, did you keep the language because you had other kids around you that that you mm-hmm. could keep the language with? At what point did you lose the language? You know, my sister, uh, she only spoke Korean until she was about four. Y- you know, she started going to kindergarten in English and didn't understand anything. And then my parents freaked out. <laughs> my parents freaked out and only then would then try for her to speak English. You know what I mean? And that is a, one of the big first steps of the assimilation. You know, if you're not able to then, if you're the only one and you don't have other people around you, at least definitely in the, in the time that I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, you know, you didn't want to know the language. You didn't want to speak the language. It othered you in, in a way that, that I don't think, hopefully, that it doesn't other you now. But I think people from my generation really deeply ingested that self-denial. Tracy, when you were saying, you know, it's taken you a while to actually come into your full pride. Absolutely. I completely understand that. I completely, deeply, deeply understand that. And I think that it's just something that continues, uh, that we need to peel away like an onion. How much, how much more can I understand and know myself? And then if that is the case, then bring it into my community. Because that is something that I deeply feel that we are only on the cusp of. It's exciting, you know? Uh, we have history behind us and it, this is the cusp of the next generation to really then kind of move this through in a much more unified way. To say, wait, who are we? Who are we? Who are we? And to ask ourselves that. And to not have that defined by any other, you know, overarching group of people, culture, belief system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All this processing is very helpful. Honestly, this podcast is like therapy to me. And I find the energy that you're bringing, Sandra, is very encouraging. I appreciate that because it's encouraging, you know? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's also like really exciting to me to meet people like yourselves and young people like yourselves who it's just like, what can, what can we talk about? You know what I mean? Cause it's like, I'm, I'm a little, I'm, I'm a little further down the line and, and have always felt like a canary in the coal mine to say, I want to report back to you what I've seen. 
and let's talk about it so maybe it will help us all process it and then you can continue that on. I mean, I'm going to continue all my work too, but even this space of the podcast world, which I love podcasts, you know, and I, and, and I was so excited when your podcast first came out. It's like, it's like, yeah, let's have this long form conversation where we can spend some time unspooling our thoughts. More of our conversation with Sandra Oh is coming up next. So stay with us. SoCal, get ready for the cultural event of the year. The LA Times Festival of Books is back April 22nd through the 23rd at the USC campus. Don't miss this fun-filled celebration of storytelling with over 300 exhibitors, 500 authors, readings, food, live music, and more. The best part? It's free for all ages. Visit latimes.com slash festivalofbooks for programming details and volunteer opportunities. That's latimes.com slash festivalofbooks. Gracias. Welcome back to our first episode of season two of Asian Enough. Here's more of our conversation with Sandra Oh. Let's talk about Killing Eve. For me, Killing Eve isn't an Asian show, quote unquote, but it doesn't erase the fact that Eve is Asian. Like in season three, we see her starting her life in a Korean enclave in London called New Malden. Even all the way back in season one, I remember one of my, my first moments of joy was Eve in the break room with her, with her boss, with her little bento box and chopsticks. And they're just like the small details. But how has the experience been for you, I guess, bringing these aspects of Eve's identity into like the text of the show without having it being the focus of the story and who she is? Sure. I feel like Killing Eve for me regarding that subject matter of is a, is a real transitional piece for me. Because this kind of goes back to maybe something that you were asking earlier on. I am now kind of only interested in, <laughs> in pieces that are specifically dealing with Asian experiences. Not in a heavy-handed way, but in a way that considers it. You know, when I was on Grey's for 10 years, it was a specific thing in our in the show at that time where race was never talked about. Like a deliberate choice? Deliberate choice. I mean, mm-hmm. I will say it was the Obama years. It was the Obama years. Do you know what I mean? And it rolled out the way that it rolled out. So there was a lot that was potentially you could play, but we just didn't. We just, the style of the show was the style of the show. And so when I moved on to Killing Eve, because I had honestly much more power on the show Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and much more influence, I felt that I could, had good relationships with the writers to be able to bring that element in. To tie both of those threads together... On Grey's, where Dr. Christina Yang, MD, PhD, and the acronym I forget for being a fancy surgeon, were there aspects of her as a character that you that you wanted to play, even that integrated her cultural identity or her Asian identity that you wanted to play, but but you know those discussions? No, no, it was just mm. honestly that wasn't that wasn't uh, <laughs> one time. Oh man, one time I came up with a really good, a really good joke. I wanted to do this really good joke with Sara Ramirez. And I kind of wanted to do like, it was a joke, it was a good joke, but it was just like, I was trying to get, you know, Christina was ambitious and just try to get ahead, right? So she was just kind of trying to pull the like, you know, the POC card, 
with, you know, Dr. Torres, but it wasn't the time. Do you know what I mean? You know, it just wasn't the time and it wasn't the part of the show. So it wasn't anything that I, uh, that I actually focused on. The only thing that I would say focused on, it's a big part of my interest now is, is suggesting to the showrunners at that time. It's like, and just pointing out to them that whenever it had to do with a storyline of a kid, uh, the casting would only be a white family or a black family. Hmm. And it's important to branch out because we need to deepen our bench, right? And it starts there, right? So those are the moments that I have felt like I was able to step in in a way of like, hey, do you realize we've never had an Asian kid on the show? Let's open it up a bit. You yeah. know what I mean? And 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 honestly, Grey's Anatomy was so progressive at the, at its time. You know what I mean? But also, I had a good relationship with people that I I felt that I could, I could. But but moving again onto what you're saying about Killing Eve, yes, I had great conversations with uh, Suzanne Heathcote, who was a, a showrunner on 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 that season. Um, you know, my actually my pitch to them for the beginning of season three for Killing Eve was like Eve is on a moped in like Cambodia. Do you know what I mean? Like, you can't tell who she is. Like, she's doing all this Jason Bourne stuff because she's, like, hiding out. And they said, great idea. And they put it into New Malden. <laughs> but you know what I mean? But but in the ways where I was trying to um, express to them, make it about food, make her in, in the back of a kitchen. Do you know? Because I wanted Eve to be around food. Mm. That's where all of us go for comfort. Exactly. I wanted another, her to be right? around something essential. And actually, in the previous season, there was this storyline about the ghost. Wonderful Dutch-Korean actress who played the ghost. That's the actor Jung Sundan Hollander, I think. And I probably butchered that name, and, I, and I'm very sorry. When that storyline came, it was like, oh, who's this, you know, assassin? She does nails, right? She's also, um, she works in, in cleaning. You know what I mean? For me, I was like, oh... She needs to be a person of color. She needs to be a person of color. And I was like, she needs to be Asian, Southeast Asian. She needs to be black. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like, who psychologically is it? Who are the people who will go undetected and not noticed by a, you know, a rich white man? You know what I mean? And that's something that honestly, the showrunner at that time, I think it just, they, or the people, they just did not necessarily think of. So it ended up being actually a, a, a Korean Dutch actress. But those are the moments where I've, I've been able to influence in a kind of transition-y way where we are in the world, but it's not just like we don't have our background and story and, and fullness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Baby steps, inches forward. Oh, yeah, babe. I got to tell you. Yeah. But it's an, in the encouraging way that is only how the change really happens. You know, you mean you, you, anyone just slapping on something and sending 50 bucks somewhere, it's great. It's absolutely a fantastic first step. But if you really, really want to change that change, it has to come from within. You know, that's the slow lesson. We talked a little bit about Dr. Christina Yang earlier, but I feel like I would be remiss if I do not ask this, um, especially for the, the fans that rediscovered the show throughout the pandemic. Do you keep tabs of her? Christina, the character in your head? Like, how do you think she would be dealing with the pandemic? That's a great question. Because I haven't thought as Christina for many years. 
But I, I, I gotta tell you, I so appreciate her and that character. It was just such a privilege to play that for a decade. It really, really was. And as time goes by where I've been further and further away from her, I've been able to appreciate her more and more. Exactly because it's like, oh my God, pandemic. Let's just watch 5,000 million episodes of Grace to make us feel better. You get a cry, a good cry in like, you know, minute 45, and then it's happy. It's good. It's good. <laughs> if I can just step back into someone like Christina, like I imagine all the healthcare workers like wickedly at the front line trying to solve the big problems, you know, and then probably in her level and in her seniority, it would be now discovering, because it's like, you know, this pandemic is just the wealth gaps. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it's, 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 it's even more just obvious and problematic. So probably attacking the mm. systematic problems, mm. not just the, the day to day in and day out is probably systematic problems. Now, some of your castmates have returned. Have you given thought to whether you would come back? Oh, my gosh, no. No, no. I love (laughs) it, though. And and this is also why I really appreciate the show, is that uh, I still get asked this. Because people want it, you know? If I can just uh, say thank you, because it's very difficult. It's very rare, I should say, to be able to see in, in such a way the impact of a character. It, you know what I mean? You, you do, in some ways, you do your work as a bubble and you let it go, you know? And I, had, I, I left that show, my God, seven years ago almost. So I, in my mind, it's, it's gone. But for a lot of people, it's still very much alive. And while I understand and I love it, I have moved on. So please come with me. <laughs> so please come with me to Killing Eve and, and onto the chair and onto the other projects because this is also how we have moved on as well. You, you know what I mean? With all the joy, it's like, come see then the characters that I'm playing that are much more deeply integrated in our, our let's just say, one aspect, the Asian American experience. You know, I, I will say this one thing in the chair, you know, I felt it was amazing. So the wonderful man, Mr. Lee, he plays my dad. He plays my dad. And when I was working it out with Amanda, I was just like, Amanda, just leave all his dialogue in Korean. It's fine. I understand what he's saying. And it's more comfortable for him. Mr. Lee never acted before. And that Mr. Lee is your castmate, Ji Young Lee. It's, yeah. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Just, it's just like never acted. Wonderful man. And, and again, this is about our bench. Uh, how how to deepen our bench so there are um there are things that we have to shift around but there is this scene where so my character uh, uh has a daughter and my daughter is not of the same race i'll just just say it that and and my father is speaking korean to me i'm trying to speak in english to my daughter i'm trying to i'm in the middle really my character is just caught in the middle, mostly in all aspects in this show. And I just, I felt something really special going on in having an argument with my dad in Korean and English, and then having to speak to my child in English. But that she 
having her also understanding Korean, but also understanding English, and then trying to bring the elements of her ethnicity into it. It was very fulfilling because I just thought this is a story that I want to tell where many of us have multiple things going on, have the richness of having to speak another language other than English to our, our, our parents and then having to bridge from our, our parents to our children and how, how satisfying that was. Um, and how, how I felt that I am making this for people who will understand this intimately. And what excites me about that and what excites me to continue working that way is I don't want to worry about people who might not understand about my experience. I am only concerned with people who are interested in this experience. I mean, there's enough Marvel movies out there. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm trying to do something different here. So you don't have to speak Korean. But if you know what it is to be in that place of being squeezed at all ends and also being a single mom, you know what I mean? It's like, hopefully you would enjoy the chair. I like that sentiment too, because it's also like relieving ourselves of expending the energy of explaining ourselves to the people who don't, who won't care, who don't want to take the time to learn. Yeah, yeah. Or it's just like, it's just like, just watch it. Mm. Just watch it. Enjoy it. You see a gentleman, you know, an older gentleman saying stuff that, you know, it's going to be subtitled, obviously. You know what I mean? But to many people, just hearing that language and seeing someone interact will reflect their own experience deeply. And I want to reflect that. I'm interested in that storytelling and interested in, in you know, an interracial adoption story. I am interested in these these other layers where it's taken a while to then move on from something like Grace and Christina, which is in a specific world, in a specific tone, a specific style. But this is what I'm interested in now, a multi-level place where culture and language is always flowing through us. You know, it's always flowing through us because the, the piece is about me, you know, being the chair of an English department. I mean, that's that's what the piece is about. But these elements are woven deeply into the DNA of the show. Honestly, my character's name is June Kim. I was ecstatic when Amanda Peake gave me this script and like I had a Korean name. Do you know what I mean? It was, a, it was very deep for me to receive this script and, and, and her basically say, this is so tailored for you and to have a Korean name. You know what I mean? It's very important. You know, just to, in, in the way of normalizing things. Again, it's not like, I'm not doing it for you people who don't understand different names. But it's like, it's nice to be able to hear a name that you might not be familiar with, but all the other characters are saying my name and saying my name correctly. Ah, saying it correctly. Yeah. Oh my God. Did you see? Did you see Yoon Yeo-jung? <laughs> On the Oscars, yes. Okay, so I'll just call her Ms. Yoon because I just feel like I can't, call her by her first name, but I gotta tell you, that was hilarious. And I think that was very gracious of her giving a blanket. I forgive you all for like just completely murdering my name throughout this entire award season. That was very generous of her. Yes. Union Jung accepting the Best Supporting Actress Oscar last month for her role in Minari. Great acceptance speech. She's really, what a masterclass in 
handling this entire experience she she has been. But it's also like, I feel like she has that thing, the difference that I've been fascinated ever since Parasite had their glory year was the difference between, let's say, being in a Korean-American and a Korean-Korean. Mm. And I had a profound experience watching Parasite win. And that was that I, that I can feel off Ms. Yoon's being, not only because she is like that, but they do not have the blanket of internalized racism that we do. Right. They are not fogged by it. You know, and I keep, you know, Bong Joon-ho's like, whatever his quote about, I don't know what awards, I don't know, it might have been the Oscars, that it's a very local, it's a very local affair or it's something. local awards. <laughs> it was something like, it was so, it's so genius. And I was just like, yeah, you're right. It, do you know what I mean? So the idea of seeking validation through this, this space that has nothing to do with his life. Of course, it has to do with his life. But he has his life and his work and this in another country where yeah. he, like Ms. Yoon, is a master. You know, it's nice to be considered a master in, in, an, in another country, in another setting. But they, my imagination is, is that they're not seeking validation through the, the medium of the Oscars. You know, she already knows she's a master. Mm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? He does too. So it's like, that's nice. Thanks. <laughs> but I'm not going to sweat it. It seems, because I don't know how that feels either, having been Asian American my whole life and, and not lived in a society of people who look like me. It seems liberating. I, I felt like they didn't have, like watching him throughout Bong Joon-ho through the whole award season, I'm like, he doesn't have something on him that I know I have. He's not caring. He's freed of something that I know I'm carrying. And I was fascinated by it. It was like the first time I could, I could really, really see it. It's exciting. and It's exciting to see. And that's where I would like to follow, you know what I mean? I'm really inspired by that. Yeah, how do we all get there? <laughs> but, well, honestly, still, again, by talking it out, that's a different yeah. experience. My imagination is like, oh, of course. I mean, they have their problems, too. I don't know what the hell they are, but, like... I clearly have something that carrying something that they're not. So let me mm. put it down. Let me let it go. Mm. Let me burn it. Okay, time to wrap up this conversation, but not before we bring back a segment we're calling Asian Enough Confessions. It was called Bad Asian Confessions last year, yes, but we gave it a bit of a rebrand because we wanted to be clear that we don't actually think there's a bad way to be Asian. So in this segment, we're going to share a time or a thing that had made us feel that we're not Asian enough. So I'm going to share first. We've been talking about names and pronunciation. I think for me, my name is Tracy Brown. I feel... Very much like nobody expects the face I have when you hear the name Tracy Brown and nobody expects the name Tracy Brown as an introduction when you meet me. So like that is, a, you know, that's something that I think I've carried on for like as soon as you're aware, like you are not meeting a certain type of expectation. I wonder, Tracy, is there a way to turn that around that is for you? You know what I mean? Where where the expectation you can be uh, 
I relieve you from that. I relieve you from that. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Where, where it's about the point of view, you know, uh, transforming that, that, that moment of coming into the meeting, that moment of whatever. And then, you know, you see the face, do a double take and t- I'm sorry. Oh, oh, you're a trade. Oh, okay. You know, that is, I'm wondering and I'm hoping for you that whatever that loop has, has kind of oppressed you if there's a way to free yourself from it and it be just a different experience that's what I wish for you I have found it oddly empowering the ambiguity I'm like no one can pigeonhole me because it's my name for real (laughs) and you can't get anything from there are no clues for you now everybody's gonna listen to this podcast and they will know (laughs) that's what I say uh, my confession, I'm going to make it quick because I know we have to let you go, Sandra. My confession is more like, uh, mine is a confession of guilt. And it's a feeling of guilt that I don't necessarily want to be absolved of, but it's something that it helps for me to vocalize. And that is, for a long time, and I mean up until like really recent recent years probably, I didn't take the time to learn about other Asian experiences outside of the Asian diaspora, the Asian American experiences that I immediately knew. Like, for example, my family, who I've shared that my family was incarcerated in World War II, but it took me a long time to realize that that happened to Japanese Canadians as well. It's a history that Canada shares, you know, that Japanese people on the West Coast of Canada were also incarcerated into camps. So for me, realizing that, thinking about that, Obviously, I want to keep learning, and it's something that I embrace, uh, the knowledge of what I didn't know before. But it's something that really, really just kind of motivates me to never think that I know everything, even about the experiences that, that I share. That's great, Jen. I will, I will piggyback on that of, like, as we are, you know, unless you are, well, maybe even, even if you are African-American, learning more about the African-American experience and and understanding that there is a plethora of information to self-educate. I also need to self-educate about our experience here in, in North America and what our history is here. So echo, echoing that. And then the other part I'd say is, you know, kind of really waking up to, uh, this really is a confessional, um, waking up to... Uh, Understanding that I think that I have uh, the systems of validation that I think that I have followed don't serve me. You know what I mean? They really don't serve me. There's something also that somehow is tied into that whole Yun Yajang Bong Jun Ho. That's nice. Thank you. You know, go do my work. You know what I mean? There's there's something in that that I I've only kind of really started unraveling. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You're working against a lot of history in your profession for for starters. Yeah, correct. I mean, you know, talking about not feeling enough, it's like, well, that's like your whole career. Um, And then slowly being uh, dismantled. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's actually really helpful to hear somebody of... Of your stature and your accomplishment, uh, share a thought like that. So thank you. Oh, I'm I'm again welcome to. I, I'm I'm so happy to like report back from the field. 
that it's like these things of, you know, I've thought this also because the the chair is about university setting and education, post-secondary education. It's, um, there's so much stress and so much focus in particular our community of a certain type of post-secondary education. And I really think it's bullshit. <laughs> I really, really think this is bullshit. So these things of goals, these things of what it is to be either successful or American or fitting in or all those things, these structures, I think that we have to really, really question them and really whether it's good for our souls as Asian Americans. Because mm-hmm. I know so many people and so many young people who have basically come up to me afterwards. It's like, oh, I'm glad that you spent that four to six years just pausing and being a pharmacist because it was so difficult to say no. And now you're starting to write mm-hmm. when you really always wanted to. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's it's mm-hmm. kind of pulling that 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 apart. These these structures of how we have figured out how to validate ourselves, how to make ourselves feel good or whatever, I just think is bullshit. Sandra, thank you so much for joining us. It it really has been it's been an honor <laughs> just to have you on the podcast. <laughs> well, it's been an honor just to be on the podcast. Thank you so much, Jenna Tracy. Do you have an Asian enough confession that you'd like to share with us? Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. Maybe we'll even play it on the show. Okay, that's a wrap for the very first episode of the second season of Asian Enough. Thank you to actor Sandra O for joining us and thank you for listening. Yes, thank you all so much. Thank you, thank you. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Jen Yamato, and by my colleague, Tracy Brown, who's wearing the best shirt of all time. Our producer is Asal Asanapur, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, James Reed, and Matt Brennan. And a very, very special shout out to our colleague and the co-creator with me of this podcast, Frank Shong as well as to Rebecca Johnson, who shared her tape of Sandra O speaking at the Stop Asian Hate demonstration in Pittsburgh in March. Come back next week for another great episode of Asian Enough. Our fellow reporter, Johanna Buya, joins Jen to talk with rapper Ruby Ibarra. I thought, wow, there's Filipinos out there that are actually rapping. And, and I thought, I, I just got hungry. I need more of this. And remember, we don't all have to have superpowers. There's enough Marvel movies out there. Do you know what I mean? I'm I'm trying to do something different here. 